Thank you. Um, I will say that I'm a novice on Twitter, but I've accidentally got about 6,000 followers in a year, so we can think a bit about the responsibility of that. It's a bit scary. Um, it's kind of the end of the day, and I think maybe you might like to open the blinds up a bit and let a bit more fresh air in. I don't mind if you open the back door as well, just to keep everyone alert at the end of the day. Hello, everybody. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, kind of two angles of, of historical projects and crowdsourcing. First of all, how you as researchers to build on what everybody else has been saying can kind of have your own communication network with media. You might see on Twitter some days that it doesn't look like I'm doing very much. I actually use Twitter a lot to talk to people, but I don't do it publicly. Nobody told me that that's what you could be doing on Twitter. So I'm still a novice and I'm still learning. I have lots, if I want to meet somebody for tea or coffee, I'm not going to do all that in public. I don't like following people on Twitter who spend all their time, especially my own research students, saying, I'm bored or this day's going really badly. Who, who's got time for coffee? You know, I, I'm quite straightforward on Twitter and I use it a lot for talking to other journalists and talking to people like you. I'm very interested in using Twitter to source blogs, to source stories. And for the BBC and my role, um, on the editorial board you know, for BBC History magazine and also role in strategy. You know, a lot of what I have to offer is to be able to, to reflect back where there's the gaps. You know, we talk about that a lot in on our history board. What where is good stuff happening that next particularly next generations of historians working on that we're not covering? You know, whether it's radio, TV, online, or what are the new formats that other people are trying that we should be trying? And there's a big problem in the BBC, as we've discussed earlier today, sometimes of maybe not having enough space for analytical history, that the narrative formats, particularly on TV, are very linear. How can we become more kind of dynamic in the, in the output on BBC programming. Now, some of those discussions even, too, happen publicly on Twitter, and I've been very involved in World War I that I'll talk to you a bit about as a case study. Um, but it's very interesting to me as a learner that I think I would have joined Twitter sooner if I had actually realized what, how you could use it. So you can publicly say to a, to a producer, I would like to have a conversation with you about such and such, but the rest of it, as soon as you contact them, somebody like me, I will immediately follow you, and the whole of the rest of that conversation will take, take place privately on the DM channel. So if you're a novice to Twitter and you're like me and you didn't figure out that that's actually how a lot of the chatter and the brokering of stories is happening, do have a play, have someone else show you so you, you get that. So in terms of um, historical projects and crowdsourcing, I'm going to talk a bit about how you can use Twitter and crowdsourcing for research. But I thought I'd just say a little bit more about how you can use social media and also just use old-fashioned things. So I've tweeted out, use the Radio Times, just so I don't forget to talk about that. So earlier on, we were having the sessions with journalists talking about you know, the big narrative format, for example, that you could make for Radio 4 the history of the world in 100 objects, those types of programs. They are very hard to win, you know, in terms of thinking through what that narrative format could be. I would say an example of a really great series recently, the Tom Dixon Friendship Series, 1515 Minutes. You, you need to really crunch through your own research before you're ready for that. And that kind of 
um, narrative format does take quite a long time to win. It will have been about 18 months, two years in, in the making of. In the talk, you know, from first discussion through to thinking it through to getting the commission to making it with a team of producers. However, there's lots of other history going on, particularly on radio, particularly on local radio. And a great place for all of you to start and to cut your teeth is to, to get in touch with your local radio station. I mean, and it might be that you work on Aztecs and you don't have masses to say about your, say, your Sheffield environment. But actually, having a, a historian from a local university or archive come on to something like what the papers say is incredibly value, valued by your local radio station. They, there are always history stories in your local paper. And we do have the confidence. We all teach. We have the confidence to, to discuss those for you know, three, four minute slot. It's a great way to start kind of practicing in a very friendly, I mean, it's a very non-adversarial environment. You are there to do well for the producer. They've invited you on to kind of help them out to discuss history stories in the paper. When I do it in someone like the local station, BBC Radio York, I'm not going to choose a story I can't have an, you know, an opinion on and fly with. I'm going to choose things that I think I might, that I might be able to even introduce a colleague's work and say, well, this is an interesting story because you know, we're back on Richard III again or whatever it might be. So that I think you can use your own networking capabilities, the way you'll network with subject areas of people in your own area. You can do that locally with newspapers. And my big thing with getting into things like Radio 3 and Radio 4, use the Radio Times. If you hear a program you really like, or you, there's a resonance with your work, going on to something like the Today program is not what we're all going to do. It's really scary. It is. You are a performing, you know, you're going to be, yeah, kind of a performing puppet on a program like that. You're there to do a job really fast. You've got to have a quick in. You've got to be really ready with what you have to say. Most programs don't get made like that, particularly in radio. It's in a conversation. The producer is there to help you communicate well. It's not live. Most Radio 3 and Radio 4 programs, they're not live, are they? None of us have been tortured in many life situations. If you start the sentence badly, which we often all do, you'll restart the sentence again. The producer will help you think of how you'll say that better. And I find with most of the programs I've ever made, I ask a couple of questions. Tell me about your research. And the historian will usually ramble around the houses with many, many footnotes for about 10 minutes. Once they're warmed up and we've I kind of understand where they're coming from. They've got comfortable with the situation. I can usually ask them just a killer question. Tell me, why does your research matter? That's when I get the answer, and that's usually what I can use in the program. But it's a conversation. I don't need that first 10 minutes warm-up. We're kind of aware. We've booked to spend half an hour, 40 minutes an hour with one another. So it's not going to be that combative because we both know we need, we're looking for three, four minutes to put in that radio or even a TV show. So I just wanted to have a bit of a kind of, kind of a, think of that the relationship can actually be kinder. And if you're working with you know, fairly senior journalists, they're, they're not there to wrong foot you. I think it really is the news environment we talked about this morning where I think you have to be very kind of, you do have to 
prepare and it's a much tenser situation than it would be for me too. I wouldn't take it lightly to go on to Newsnight or the Today programme or the One or the Six, any of those, because you have to perform very fast. So that's my first kind of thing of just saying, you can kind of crowdsource what kind of program you go on to. And I just wanted to mention, I came in a bit late for the program, the, the panel this morning, but I would suggest that the kinds of areas where, particularly Radio 4 are always looking for good stories, are things like the Long View, the Jonathan Friedland show. So that kind of resonance where your work on medieval plague or the kind of thing that we would cover recently would be the, the resonance between your hardworking families and the Elizabethan poor law and the, the labeling of the deserving poor. Those are the kind of things you've all got in your heads all the time. And it's not anachronistic. It actually plays with that tension between the past and the present in that series. It's a fantastic series, always looking for, for, for shows. So you just need to look in the Radio Times, see our Neil George or whoever it is most recently was producing that series. I'll contact them. That's when you get a quick in. And not all of those kinds of producers are on Twitter that much. You do still need to email them. How do you email them? In an organization like the BBC, and many broadsheets, very, very easy. First name dot at bbc.co.uk. You know, unless that person's got, there's two of them, like there's two Mike Thompsons, so you need to know if you want Mike Thompson 1 or Mike Thompson 2. It's as easy as that. So even Melvin Bragg, who I haven't had to talk to recently, but he probably is melvin.bragg at bbc.co.uk. But you wouldn't be contacting him. In any case, as we've said, you'd be contacting the producer. So that's one way in I wanted to talk to you about. Crowdsource your own network. Um, and you can use Twitter, but you can also use traditional methods. And it is amazing how good the Radio Times is at always giving you the full listing of all those who are involved in the making of a program. So the other thing we wanted to just cover a wee bit today is how you can use Twitter and social media for research. So I've just put up a set of um, projects, which I'll talk through a few of them very quickly. I think I've become much more aware of this, partly from being involved in Twitter. But it is amazing as somebody who's, you know, for me, my practice is public history. And I'm really interested in how we can engage a wider public. I'm not sure that Twitter is the way that I actually reach people that I don't talk to otherwise. You know, if I'm really honest about it, I thought it would be. I think for me personally, the group of people I can talk to on Twitter that I wouldn't have had access to before are history teachers. And for me, that is very rewarding, that I would, I would say I would probably have hundreds and hundreds of history teachers following me. And they're not the kind of people I could easily source across the whole of the UK you know, that easily. And maybe archivists and library and museum and gallery people too, because they're pretty active on Twitter. But history teachers are, and sometimes, again, through DMing as well, I had really great conversations with them about, say, getting ready for the World War I at BBC, asking questions about how they teach. They've been enormously helpful, and quite often those transactions happen, happen through Twitter. How can we use social media for larger projects? I'd look at old weather. I'm just amazed by the old weather project. So. This is a project which has involved thousands of members of the public transcribing ship's logs. So, yes, 
36,000 pages. Actually, don't quote me that on Twitter because I can't remember the exact number. I think it says 36,000 pages of ship's logs were um, digitized by the National Archives, got together in a project with the Met Office, so it's come through a science team, Zooniverse, at the University of Oxford. Amazing public engagement project. They started with people who were interested in climate change. That was the focus of the project. Let's transcribe all these ship's logs and use them to look at climate change over time. What actually happened, which I love as a public historian, lots of members of the public got really hooked on maritime history. What an amazing win. They started having even kind of captains of particular ships who would then help be the lead transcriber. It was beautifully worked out, and there are many other projects now, like the Ancient Lives Projects, which are following a similar model. So for every page of a ship's log, there would be three transcribers, like an experienced one, a less experienced one. So also we found with these kind of projects, they only work if you get feedback, if you start become part of a group, if there really is a, a community. And this project has worked brilliantly. It's community, they've got through the project really fast. If you jump down now to things like the lives of the First World War, the call went out in the media for transcribing diaries. I mean, those were zipped through, some of them, in about 24 hours. The, the, the huge, huge tranches of materials that need to be transcribed, people jumped in because they're kind of into it now. A bit like those who work on Wikipedia. I think professional historians, or I say professional historians, academic historians can be very snobby about Wikipedia. And I always say to them, well, if you, that page is not good, why aren't you doing about it, something about it? If you're the expert and you've written the monograph, write the bloody page, just take the time. If you don't know how to do it, have someone show you how you, you become a Wikipedian. Because the people who wrote those pages do do a lot of research, and it's really interesting to see now the kind of crowdsourcing projects that places like the British Museum, British Library have been doing of teaming up with Wikipedia. So the British Library too is a very interesting thing to look at. British Library Mechanical Curator I wrote on the list as another example, a very different kind of crowdsourcing because there with the mechanical curator it's lots of illustrations from particularly 18th century images from books and kind of random woodcuts and etchings. They've asked the research community to play with those materials, to think about how do we make those materials useful, how do we group them together, what kind of thematic um, patterning could researchers play with with these materials. So, the, so now it's interesting to see that archives are kind of turning things around and using Twitter particularly um, to ask research community to help them think through how to work with digital humanities before spending the money. You know, normally in the past it would have been let's, yeah, let's pattern all these ourselves in-house and get a big bunch of money to do it. Now it's like, well, let's ask the research community what's actually useful. How might people play with these materials? So I, I think we're at a very kind of interesting time where, where we could, as historians, be thinking really big about how to use social media and building communities way beyond those that we might talk to within our universities and democratizing skills. That's what I really like about many of these projects, so democratizing 
the research skills, about transcription skills, as well as the thinking skills about how to analyze those materials, how to think about historical inquiry, how to think about change over time, what are the cultural contexts of these materials. So the newest one that's just come available from the British Library now is crowdsourcing comic art. I mean, what fun for a major public engagement history project. You know, I hope, I hope that it does well and lots of people kind of get stuck in. Another aspect of thinking about crowdsourcing and theming, which many of you be aware of, so apologies if this is kind of pretty basic, but one of the things that I learned about um, Twitter, which I wasn't really aware of before, is how useful things like storifying debates. I don't know if anyone is storifying from today, but if you haven't thought of a good hashtag, that's a problem too. So for example, on the BBC recently, we had Crimson Field. You know, it's quite a long hashtag which means you probably can't have really detailed analytical conversations if half of your line is taken up by a really long hashtag. So learning about what we might do for BBC was we came up with a decision which was very interesting within you know, a major broadcasting organization that they wouldn't come up with their own hashtag for BBC World War One. That actually most of the big discussions have just been done under hashtag World War One. So that's pretty, I think that's quite a grown up decision for a broadcaster. Say, if everyone else is using this hashtag, the academics wanted uh, FWW. Uh, so there's a, a lot of discussions around that. But in the end, if everyone out there is using hashtag WW1, why not just go with it? And then you're going to suck all these other people into a conversation. So for the first time, the big thing that, um, that I've worked on, and you can see some of them under these resources that we've started to gather things together now, is that the BBC decided that we were going to have a public debate about World War I. And we ran something uh, alongside the program from Niall Ferguson and David Reynolds as a kind of trial. And many of us in the historical profession have been wanting a BBC question time style format, which we haven't quite found yet, but we've trialed it. And on the night, it was a Friday night, because uh, you had Niall Ferguson for 90 minutes, 60 minutes kind of to camera, but debate format, 30 minutes with Q&A with an audience in studio, then over onto Radio 5 Live, and that could have gone on till midnight. There were so many people pitching in, and we were running, we had a kind of war room, not as big as this, half the size of this, with the Twitter streams, and I have not been on Twitter, okay, for more than a year. I had 4,000 people tweet at me an hour. There were that many people involved. So all those people I had started talking to as well, those people, even like Caroline, who I started having chats with about TV formats, why people were frustrated with different kinds of radio formats or TV formats, the history teachers I've been talking to for a few months, they came to the party with me. There was loyalty there. We started telling people about a week before that this was going to happen. And I was really, it really, really was a good occasion for having this kind of cross communication. So there were producers involved in the conversation. There were many academic historians. There were many history teachers. And just people who were interested in the World War I all started to have this massive debate. And I think there was a worry by the BBC that it would be, you know, nutters 
would be out there. There would be a lot of trolling going on. But because there were so many people invested in having a conversation, not just about World War I, but about historical practice, about interpretation, I didn't really see those guys out there because they were just drowned out. There were too many thousands of people wanting to have a historical conversation. So I think that has been a kind of good precedence about how you kind of cross, how you can use hashtags to crowdsource those who want to have a discussion together publicly and come to the party just for kind of one night. Um, the next thing which I'm starting to work on as a kind of public historian is then thinking about, well, how do we, how do we learn from that? So um, this is a project from Hummerbird at um, Pat Lockley, who I can share with you his uh, details, who's nearby at UCL. He started patterning many of these conversations. So I would say to you as well, if you're ever putting on a debate in your university and you also want evidence, that's what we were talking about earlier, how do you kind of capture the fact that you've been talking to a wide group of people. This is really interesting. He can pattern. If you choose a good hashtag and you've got everybody on it for the day, we could see, for example, through this room, who's been talking to other people, how many times things have got re retweeted, and what the, um, what the impact has actually been. So I did an event on Sunday, and we could, by the end of that Sunday, from rather a long hashtag, Cycle of Songs, which is a project I'm working on for an arts funding commission at the moment in Cambridge, we could see that we had a reach you know, through those couple of weeks of 12.5 million or whatever it is. You, know, you can see very clearly by using these kind of informatics what your reach has been for a particular project, particularly if you have a hashtag that no one else is using, and that's what we're doing for Cycle of Songs. For this, it was around World War I for the evening, but you could see on the right-hand side, there's two or three key players, mostly the one, one of the ones that I was tweeting from, which was at BBC World War I, that new tweet stream, that a lot of the flow is coming in and out. Um, and so these kind of, Packages, normally you can team up with other people in your university because there'll be people in the education department or people in the linguistics department who have this skill set and actually also need research data for their work. They're looking at conversation analysis and things. So that would be a kind of practical suggestion that I thought I'd make. But if you want evidence and you want, you're interested to see what public engagement might look like around a particular theme or subject that you've chosen, um, that this kind of informatics around specific hashtags can be a valuable kind of way forward. Um, there's my information. Um, I'm available for questions um, either publicly on Twitter, by email, or DM if it's of a personal nature. Okay, thank you. Very much.